Stock have too high a price? Buy a slice. Trade fractional shares of your favorite U.S. stocks and ETFs in any dollar amount you choose with zero commissions online. Get started at fidelity.com slash stocks by the slice. Fractional share quantities can be entered to three decimal places if the value of the order is at least one cent. Dollar-based trades can be entered to two decimal places. Sell orders are subject to an activity assessment fee from one cent to three cents per $1,000 of principal. Fidelity Brokerage Services, LLC. Member NYSE SIPC. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. The Bowery Boys episode 422... Grace Church, a very fashionable history. Hey, it's the Bowery Boys. Hey. Hi there. Welcome to the Bowery Boys. This is Greg Young. And I'm Tom Myers. And here we are, Greg, at the end of the year, getting into the holiday mood. And we thought that we would focus today on the story of a place that certainly knows how to celebrate the holiday season. And celebrate it in style. It's a place, in fact, that's always been in style. How often can you say that about something in New York? (laughs) We're talking about Grace Church in Manhattan, a picture-perfect Gothic Revival Episcopal Church located at Broadway and 10th Street, completed in 1846. Yes, it sits right there at the crook of Broadway, if you will, just as the street bends on its way up to Union Square, which, as you will hear in a bit, gives it a bit of extra visual prominence. You know, Mm -hmm. Grace Church kind of seems to pop out at you as you look up and down Broadway. And even though it opened on this spot in 1846... This actually wasn't the original location. So today we'll examine where it originally sat, why it moved, and why here exactly. Yes, and Grace Church is notable for a number of reasons, including its architect, James Renwick Jr., and also the social outreach that it did to the neighboring, you know, largely immigrant communities. But it's also remembered for something else. Grace Church was one of the most fashionable churches in New York City for several decades in the 19th century. Some of the New Yorkers who were members here at some point in their lives went on to become, you know, some of the most famous names of the Gilded Age, including, yes, Mrs. Astor herself. They worshipped here, they were baptized, got married, and some even had their funerals here. So how did all of that come about? We'll investigate. And of course, today the church is still going strong, so Greg and I will be stopping by later in the show to tour Grace Church with Vicar Harry Krauss. Indeed, while it looks smaller, it does hold 1,000 people. Wow. (laughs) So on Easter or Christmas, when there are 1,000 people in here, it's an extraordinary experience. Mm -hmm. So find a pew, or rent a pew. Or buy a pew, if you have one lying around, and join us as we look at the very fashionable history of Manhattan's Grace Church. So today we're exploring the story of Grace Church. 
the lovely Gothic Revival Church on Broadway and 10th Street. But as old as it looks, that is actually the church's second location. That's true, yes. So let's rewind to the original Grace Church, uh, which was incorporated as an Episcopal church in 1809, located at Broadway and Rector Street, which is just across the street from another Episcopal church, Trinity Church. Talk about some competition. It's like Macy's and Gimbel's across the street from each other. No pressure. Was Grace linked to Trinity, though? Like, maybe as a chapel? No, Grace was formed independently, but but it was linked, you know, in that they are both part of the same mm. denomination. But, you know, churches could fill up. They rented out or outright sold their pews. So if those pews filled up and were taken you know, you can see how another parish would need to be constructed and formed. And that is what happened here. Trinity had filled up. I guess that says more about the growing popularity of the Episcopal Church in New York at this particular time in the early 19th century. Yeah, and I'm kind of having flashbacks here because I just spoke about this on that other podcast, on the official Gilded Age podcast. Season two starts... In another Episcopal church, St. Thomas's Church, upon 53rd and 5th Avenue. Much later in the 1880s, which we'll get to. Right, but as I was speaking about on that podcast, the Episcopal Church is part of the Anglican Communion. It's, it's related to the Church of England and very similar in terms of service and customs. Trinity had been an Anglican church— uh, before the revolution, of course. But after the revolution, you know, once it became American, who wanted to be in an Anglican church in the U.S.? You know, so the Episcopal Church developed as a sort of American cousin to the Church of England, and it was still part of the Anglican communion. And carried a certain cachet because of that. It had this connection to the old world. Right, as did another church, the Dutch Reformed Church, Membership in these churches, you know, could really suggest a kind of connection to, to old Knickerbocker, New York. A couple minutes ago, you mentioned, however, that churches rented out or even sold their pews. Weren't they supposed mm -hmm. to be places that were open to everyone? Sure, but that, that is how they generated money, you know, to run the churches. And it was a practice that happened all over the city, not just, you know, at Grace. And it would continue in some churches well into the 20th century. And we'll go deeper into that part of the story later in the show. But right from the beginning for Grace, prominent New York families joined this new congregation, including the Skirmerhorn family, the Lowe's, the Ogden's. Codwallader Colden, Greg, was a member <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, while he was mayor of New York in the 18-teens. All right, it's a good roster so far. Yeah, and I, I found an interesting anecdote in the booklet Grace Church in New York by Edith McKittrick, who notes that the third rector, Jonathan Mayhew Wainwright, led efforts to develop Grace's musical program um, right from the beginning. And the celebrated alto singer, Maria Malibran, even sang in the church's choir. According to an article that was published decades later in the New York Times, quote, on Sundays, she sang at Grace Church and occasionally appeared in English operetta at the Bowery Theater. <laughs> oh, so she was a star, actually. That almost sounds distracting. It's like if Adele were like singing in your <laughs> choir, for instance. Perhaps Adele did sing in some choirs. I hope she did. <laughs> um, very similar. But 
Apparently, it caused such a sensation that, as McKittrick wrote, quote, the clamor to see and hear her proved so disruptive to the services that her performances had to be discontinued. My goodness. Well, she certainly wasn't the last celebrity to cause a disruption at Grace Church. No, and it is a tradition that goes way back here to Rector Wainwright, um, who would become Bishop of New York in the 1850s. And yes, Greg, because I can see that you're interested Mm -hmm. and you're giving me that look, I did go down a bit of a rabbit hole and connect Rector Wainwright's descendants all the way down to Rufus Wainwright. And of course, Loudon Wainwright. So there's already like a, a history of singer-songwriters that go through the church here in an interesting Very way. Very musical, yes. But back to the 1820s, under Wainwright, the church also set up a girls' school and a boys' school, traditions that continue today, uh, but started way back downtown. So when did Grace move? And, and why, actually? It sounds like things are going pretty well down here, actually, across from Trinity Church. Well, by the 1830s, the neighborhood was changing. The Erie Canal, of course, had opened in 1825, and business in the city was booming. Um, The streets were now jammed with carts, you know, that were moving goods from docks into warehouses and back out onto ships. And so fashionable families who once lived down, you know, by Bowling Green, downtown by the Battery, they were getting out of there. Some moved up to St. John's Park in today's Tribeca. And other families even moved north of there, Washington Square Park or Bond Street. Yes, and that is exactly what happened with many of Grace's members. And so then in 1837, the next rector, Thomas House Taylor, convinced his congregation to move uptown. But it's really interesting to look back and kind of see even how some of those families followed the church up or even got uptown before the church did. And just to look at one family as an example, let's look at the Skirmerhorns. Now, Abraham Skirmerhorn was a pew holder at Grace Church downtown and lived with his family at number one Greenwich Street, which was just off the Bowling Green. And it was here in that house that his daughter, Caroline Webster Skirmerhorn, was born in 1830. But around 1840, then the family moved up to 36 Bond Street, just next to Lafayette Place, um, which, of course, was a very Tony address. And this was right around the same time then that Grace was relocating just seven blocks north of their home. And you said a familiar name, Caroline Webster Skirmerhorn who would, of course, largely be remembered today for her married name. Yes, that would be Caroline Skirmerhorn Astor, the Mrs. Astor. So, yes, Mrs. Astor grew up attending Grace downtown as a girl, but her family would move up to Bond Street around 1840, which was, you know, when the church was still choosing a location and and building the new structure uptown. The location that would be chosen, of course, was a spot that had been an orchard owned by Henry Brevort Jr., uh, which was located between Broadway and 4th Avenue and between 10th and 11th Streets. Oh, yes, the old Brevort Farm. Yes. We we discussed this fruit orchard. It comes up a lot on our show, actually. (laughs) It is reported to be the reason that Broadway angles off to the west as it moves north from 10th Street, because... Henry Brevort refused to sacrifice his precious little orchard here. 
And decades later, you know, as his son was selling plots to Grace Church, that decision to make Broadway swerve to the Northwest meant that Grace Church would really get a very prominent spot in the cityscape. Because when you look up Broadway, or when you look down Broadway from Union Square, you're looking at Grace Church. Today, it's almost like Grace Church arises out of Broadway itself. But before we spend the rest of the show here at Broadway and 10th Street, I do need to note that not all of Grace's downtown parishioners were headed uptown. Many of them lived over in Brooklyn, and in particular Brooklyn Heights, which was really beginning to grow in the 1830s. These parishioners took the Fulton Ferry over to attend service, but traveling up to 10th Street? That was just way too inconvenient. So eventually, these Brooklyn parishioners opened up their own Grace Church in Brooklyn Heights, which opened on December 10th, 1848. That Grace Church is at Hicks Street and Grace Court, appropriately, and it's still around. This parish was designed by Richard Upjohn, who had just finished alterations over at Trinity Church. So obviously highly recommended for this particular job. But back up here on 10th Street, who did the Congregation of Manhattan's Grace Church find to design their new building? Well, they went with a rather surprising choice, a young man named James Renwick Jr., who had actually never constructed anything. He was a trained engineer. He had been supervising work on the Croton Reservoir. But Renwick, surprisingly, had never been to Europe, you know, and as we'll hear when we actually visit the church and we discuss Renwick with our guest in a few minutes, Renwick chose, you know, this Gothic revival style, which was surprising because it was so new. Today, of course, you'll find many churches built in the Gothic revival style in New York, but Grace and James Renwick Jr. really started this trend in New York City. In a way, it's almost like an obvious style for a church, or it seems obvious today, but back then it was, of course, very new in America. He made it obvious. The church contains arches, stonework, the stained glass windows that you would expect of a centuries-old European Gothic-style church. Which all sounds very opulent, you know, although the church had a, a somewhat tight budget. Renwick made some choices uh, that helped cut costs for the church, which we'll hear about in a moment. Also, when it began services here in 1846, many of the features of today's church did not yet embellish the church, right? Most of the windows that were in the church at the time were simply tinted glass. You know, they were not elaborate stained mm -hmm. glass. There were hardly any statues or memorials inside. Even the steeple on top of the church, which is today made of marble, was originally constructed of wood. And yet it was still a showstopper. And, of course, Remnick would go on to design many other famous and very celebrated buildings. Uh, including buildings for the Smithsonian Institute mm -hmm. and, of course, St. Patrick's Cathedral in Midtown. So how was Grace Church received when it opened? Or I guess I should say when it was consecrated? Well, I think that most people appreciated, you know, just how lovely it was. The church was consecrated on Saturday, March 7th, 1846. And I, I found an article in the next day's New York Daily Herald 
They ran an illustration of the church on the second page, along with a very long story about the consecration. And they wrote, This beautiful church was consecrated yesterday. Before the opening of the doors, a large crowd had gathered around, and when they were opened, those having tickets filled up the church. The church was filled with one of the most beautiful and fashionable congregations we ever saw gathered together. Youth, elegance, and jewelry were combined, and the colored light shining through the stained glass windows made the coup d'oeil rich in the extreme. The church is very showy, but lacks in an appearance of stability. The beautifully stained windows, the high arches, and the long-drawn aisles, however, impart a feeling of awe and wonder. Wow, light from the stained glass windows reflected in all of that jewelry. (laughs) So much jewelry, so much jewelry. (laughs) However, what are we to make of that critique, that it lacks in an appearance of stability? I think it's probably because the author wasn't used to seeing Gothic revival style, right? I mean, maybe the journalist was actually wondering how this whole church was being held up. (laughs) How does gravity work? (laughs) (laughs) Well, they hadn't seen. This was a different look, right? The interior Mm -hmm. was different, which wasn't to say that all journalists were so effusive in their praise. One in particular from Brooklyn was not impressed. Would you like to hear, Greg, the report that was offered um, that very same week to readers by a certain Walt Whitman? Oh, Walt Whitman, (laughs) church reviewer, architectural critic Walt Whitman. (laughs) Yes, that's the one. Uh, Walt called Grace Church, quote, not beautiful, but showy. My goodness. I mean, I'm sure every church in the city was locking their doors when they saw Walt Whitman come up the street. <laughs> I mean, I think that Whitman was also, you know, distraught in general by how the city was being becoming increasingly controlled, you know, by this fashionable and very, very rich set. Which is not to say that we should be in any way dismissive of its mission or of the people who worship there or their intentions or how it served the underprivileged. Soon after it moved uptown, the church established Grace Chapel over on 14th Street, which was a free church. So there were no pew rentals there. So the church was doing good work, but of course it had a congregation that was filled with society folk. Were there actual connections between the church officials to New York society of that time? In fact, yes. You know, during the mid-19th century... As the wealth in the city was starting to explode, right, and old Knickerbocker New Yorkers were first starting to panic about who was acceptable, you know, and and who was just an arriviste, Grace Church had a sexton, a man named Isaac Brown, who was there to help clarify things. He understood better than anybody else who was related to whom in New York society and really who needed to be on your guest list. I mean, it's, it's incredible, but without him, wrote a journalist in 1850, quote, the ladies of our fashionable world would be at a loss to fill up their lists. So like the ultimate social secretary, except that he was employed by the church. That's right. Yes. And employed from 1845 until he died in 1880. The New York Times wrote of him, quote, he was a handyman to the smart set planning their weddings, arranging their soirees, and seeing to their funerals when they died. 
However, Greg, I am not sure if he planned the wedding that took place at Grace Church on February 10th, 1863. P.T. Barnum had somehow persuaded the church to let him hold the marriage of his megastars, Tom Thumb and Lavinia Warren, at the church. This was the so-called fairy wedding. And it was an event that was so unusual and so chaotic and garnered so much publicity, you know, on the front pages of every newspaper in town <laughs> that it created mayhem inside and outside the church and all the surrounding streets. It was so high profile that these newlyweds even visited President Lincoln um, in the White House <laughs> after getting married here at Grace Church. Now, I know you love this story, Tom. And for more information on this and for actually greater, richer detail of this particular fairy wedding, you did an entire show on it from a few years ago. That's right. That's episode 340, The Real Life Adventures of Tom Thumb. But just a few years after that wedding in 1868, a man named Henry Codman Potter took over as the church's rector, and he would bring a new energy and a new mission to Grace Church. We'll visit Grace Church during the Gilded Age after this. Today's show is brought to you by the Algonquin Hotel. You know, when we performed our Halloween show at Joe's Pub, I stayed at the Algonquin for several nights and had a wonderful time. We met up in the Algonquin's lobby for drinks one night. They have a whole list of cocktails inspired by the round table and its famous members. Yeah, I think if I remember right that you had a Dorothy Parker and that I was sipping a Vicious Wit. That's a cocktail with bubbles. And don't forget, we also played with Hamlet, the Algonquin's lobby cat. And my room was incredibly comfortable, it was stylish, and also very literary. My room was dedicated to James Thurber, in fact, who was one of my favorite writers ever. You know, there's a whole literary theme, in fact, at the Algonquin with New Yorker covers decorating the hallways, rooms dedicated to different writers. It makes the Algonquin a hotel that's really unlike any other in the city. And it was just what I needed to feel at home while still being just a couple blocks from the heart of Times Square. So when you're planning a trip to New York, or if you live here and you just want to sip, you know, a Vicious Wit or a Dorothy Parker, check out the Algonquin Hotel on West 44th Street. Visit algonquinhotel.com. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. On April 19, 1995, a federal building in Oklahoma City was destroyed in a domestic terrorist attack. Just days after the bombing, America discovered the perpetrator was right-wing extremist Timothy McVeigh, whose mindset and values are still very present today. It's an American tragedy, but one I still remember very vividly. But there is so much more to the story than what you might remember. 
take a deeper look into this moment of history with the podcast Homegrown OKC, hosted by Jeffrey Tubin and based on his book. The Homegrown OKC podcast is about better understanding the political environment in our country today. In particular, I found fascinating all the original archival footage used in the show, sounds which brought me back to that time, but with a richer understanding of events. These episodes were thrilling to listen to. That's Homegrown OKC. To listen, search for Homegrown OKC in your podcast app. That's Homegrown OKC. In the decades before the Civil War, slavery's grip on America tightened. But soon, a diverse group of abolitionists, both black and white, began to construct a clandestine path to freedom for the enslaved. Hosted by Lindsey Graham, Wondry's podcast, American History Tellers, takes you to the events, times, and people that shaped America and Americans, our values, our struggles, and our dreams. In the latest series, American History Tellers explores the Underground Railroad, a covert network of secret routes and safe houses operated by men and women committed to helping enslaved people escape bondage in the South. Fugitive slaves and anyone helping them face terrible violence and even death if caught. But for those brave enough to risk the journey, the Underground Railroad offered a path to the northern states in Canada, where their freedom was assured. Follow American History Tellers on the Wondery app or wherever you get your podcasts. You can binge this season's American History Tellers, The Underground Railroad, early and ad-free right now on Wondery Plus. So by the early 1880s, Grace Church, here at its location on 10th Street and Broadway, had become the intersection of wealth and religion in the city. According to author James D. McCabe Jr. in his 1881 book, New York by Sunlight and Gaslight, quote, At the morning service, a greater display of wealth and fashion is presented here than at any other city church. Grace Church has been the scene of more fashionable weddings and funerals than any other place of worship, unquote. And we know who helped set those up, but... That's also interesting because, you know, speaking about wealth and fashion during the Gilded Age, New York society was moving farther up the island along Fifth Avenue and Madison Avenues and eventually Park Avenue as well. Well, in fact, the very next paragraph of McCabe's book declares, this is 1881, remember, St. Thomas's Church at the corner of Fifth Avenue and 53rd Street ranks second next to Grace, as a fashionable place of worship. It is very massive and built of brownstone in a mixed style of architecture. St. Thomas's is rapidly surpassing Grace Church in the number of its fashionable weddings and funerals and is noted for its wealth and magnificent display of its congregation, unquote. So this is a familiar tale of new houses, new theaters, new churches, built in new styles, replacing the old ones um, as society was marching up the island. And Manhattan in general was just filling up with people in the late 19th mm-hmm. century. 
Remind me, when was St. Thomas's constructed? Well, the church building opened in 1870, although like Grace, it was actually a pre-existing congregation that dates back, in this case, to the 1820s. So, in other words, the church opened right around that time that the Vanderbilts and the other rich folk were building up their enormous mansions along Fifth Avenue. But both congregations, Grace and St. Thomas, are Episcopal churches. By the Gilded Age, however, you also had a wealthy class of Catholics with their principal house of worship, the aforementioned St. Patrick's Cathedral, designed Mm -hmm. by James Renwick Jr., which was completed in 1869 at 50th and 5th Avenue, and a rising class of prominent Jewish New Yorkers of the Reform variety who built their grand Temple Emmanuel at 43rd and 5th Avenue. And all of those places, St. Thomas, St. Patrick's, Emmanuel, they were relatively close to each other in this midtown stretch of Fifth Avenue. A nice brisk walk could get you from one to the other in about 10 to 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. Grace Church, however, is quite far away, right, in comparison. So how was Grace able to retain their parishioners, you know, many of whom had moved uptown? I don't think they would have retained them had it just been a place for the rich to peacock about here, right? If it was, it was just a see and be seen place, I think it would have been over. There were other places for that. Grace kept that elevated reputation while becoming a more involved, more spiritually guided place, thanks to an influential and much beloved rector named Henry Codman Potter who was born in 1834 into one of the most accomplished and dynamic families of the mid-19th century. Among his siblings, get this, were a Civil War general, an architect, a banker, and founding member of the Metropolitan Museum, and even a member of the U.S. House of Representatives. Now that's a dinner party. I... (laughs) (laughs) And, and Potter then was the new rector of Grace Church. Yes, he served from 1868 to 1883. So at the precise moment when many of his congregation was actually migrating out of that neighborhood. I think the best way to describe Rector Potter's tenure here was that he knew how to leverage the goodwill of those wealthy parishioners that allowed his church to really become an instrument for helping the poor, using the prestige and donations to help those neighborhoods that were in the vicinity near Grace Church. Right, by which you mean, you know, the tenement quarters of the Lower East Side and Greenwich Village. But as I mentioned earlier, Grace Church rented out its pews, so that seems like it would keep much of that population away. Yeah, and that component of Grace Church did not go away under Potter. But what he did was create new spaces, annexes, if you will, which were open for free to those communities. Fate dictated some of these changes. For instance, in 1872, that 14th Street Chapel was destroyed in a horrible fire, but then rebuilt with additional purposes in mind to help the neighborhood, which included daycare services, a kitchen providing free meals, a club for young people, and a free reading room. 
So that was happening over on 14th Street while families were still renting pews here at Grace Church on Broadway. Mm-hmm. To quote from the book All Things Human by Michael Bourgeois, while maintaining a free chapel, Grace Church was committed to and dependent on pew rents. Potter regarded this two-tier system as approximate good at best. He believed free churches were important not only as a means of providing religious services for those who could not otherwise afford them, but also as a means of alleviating the alienation among classes. The rich, he argued, needed to worship in free churches as much as, perhaps more than, did the poor, unquote. So Potter was using the financial support then from his wealthy parishioners who were, you know, renting the pews at Grace to then improve and, you know, expand the church's outreach. And that's certainly not singular to Grace Church here, obviously, but many houses of worship throughout the city, as we've mentioned. But the best and I think most attractive example of this financial relationship, if you will, at Grace involves a most interesting woman by the name of Catherine Lorillard Wolfe, the heir of the vast Lorillard tobacco fortune, which she poured into collecting art and philanthropy. And Wolfe was one of the you know legendary figures of the Gilded Age that sometimes gets overlooked. She was unmarried. She didn't really tend to socialize. She wasn't flashy. But her philanthropy really touched so many aspects of New York life. You know, she helped homeless children. She helped fund archaeological digs, you know, for the Mm -hmm. American Museum of Natural History. She was everywhere. Yeah. And Grace Church, of which she was a member, also greatly benefited. In 1879, she funded the construction of a chantry for use as a Sunday school. And she also paid for a massive stained glass window on the east side, designed by Clayton and Bell, which is absolutely beautiful and impressive, dominates the church today. It was so Mm -hmm. beautiful, in fact, that other wealthy donations came in Following the installation of this window, donations which funded other stained glass windows, according to the church, three dozen of the 46 windows seen today in the church were funded and built within 10 years of Catherine's donation. That's how influential she was in the design of the church today. So she was really like a guardian angel for the church, a very rich Mm -hmm. angel, uh, but an angel nonetheless. And so beloved by the community that when she died in 1887, her funeral at Grace Church was attended by the entire social register. Cornelius Vanderbilt II, John Jacob Astor III, and William Skirmerhorn were her pallbearers. Wow. Which is quite a contrast, actually, with the funeral that was held a few years later for Ward McAllister in 1895. Um, McAllister, who had been the the gatekeeper to society and is portrayed by Nathan Lane on HBO's Gilded Age, by the time of his funeral at Grace Church in 1895, he had offended most members of high society with his tell-all memoir, uh, Society As I Have Found It, that many didn't show up for his funeral at all. Including Mrs. Astor herself. Were fashionable weddings still taking place by the end of the 19th century at Grace? 
Oh, sure. Then and now, actually, they still take place. Just thumb through the New York Times wedding announcements to get a little taste of that. But shall I tell you about my favorite wedding story at Grace Church? Please do. (laughs) A front-page-worthy ceremony held on April 18th, 1893, between the Earl of Craven and Cornelia Martin, the only daughter of socialite and famed party thrower Bradley Martin, a ceremony in front of an elite crowd of 1,200 people. Now, due to the highly publicized nature of this particular betrothal, thousands of people actually gathered outside on Broadway to witness the event or just to be around the event as it was happening. Quoting from the New York Times, There was a most unfortunate occurrence after the wedding ceremony, when the doors of the church were opened. Instead of guests going out, the curious, impatient outsiders bolted in en masse, and a scene of great confusion followed. Heedless of decorum and self-respect, women pushed in and clambered over the backs of the rear pews, and they fairly tumbled over each other in their anxiety to get a sight of Lord and Lady Craven. The outsiders began to take away souvenirs of the occasion, and men and women stomped the altar of its beauty by tearing down vines, cutting roses, and breaking off entire stems of Easter lilies. (laughs) They were ransacking the place. That's (laughs) madness. It is madness. Um, The Times added, Not since the marriage of the handsome Miss Consuelo Isnaga Duval to George Victor Drogo Montague, Viscount Mandeville, son of the Duke of Manchester, in Grace Church in May of 1876, had any wedding in this city created such widespread interest. Unquote. So these sound a little bit less like weddings and more like uh, rock concerts or like when the Beatles came to town. <laughs> yes. Well, by this time, by the time of that crazy Craven wedding, Potter had actually moved on to become the Bishop of the Episcopal Diocese of New York. He was replaced with a Massachusetts priest named William Reed Huntington, who held the role until his death in 1909. And it was under his leadership that Grace Church got its most significant expansions. First of all, in 1894, an all-new free chapel and clergy house was constructed at East 14th Street and 1st Avenue, a chapel that continued Grace's social outreach. Believe it or not, it was a part of Grace until 1943, when it was sold to the Roman Catholic Archdiocese of New York and became the Church of the Immaculate Conception. And that church is still with us today, thanks to landmark designation. That's 14th Street and 1st Avenue. Secondly, that same year, the church started up a choir and then built a school for its choir boys, 16 boys in that first class in 1894. But that space was closer to home, along 4th Avenue, just east of the church. Over the years, other buildings would be constructed along here, along 4th Avenue, that hint at Grace's Gothic Revival style, but are very much from the early 20th century. By the 1940s, then, the school had expanded its outreach to include girls as well as students from other faiths. In other words, it became a normal independent school. Today, 
the school is an entirely separate entity from Grace Church. So it's part of kind of the architectural block, but it is no longer a part of Grace Church. So by the 20th century then, Grace Church and its buildings had basically taken over this entire block. But I would say it kind of settles into its role as a bedrock religious institution for the entire community going forward. Not that it loses its elite social distinctions entirely. It even has them today, really. In fact, many interesting changes came along in the 1960s. (laughs) Which is a statement that could be pretty much said about (laughs) any building in New York City. Yes. Just cut and paste that. Good point. But in the case of Grace Church in 1960, they get a new rector named Benjamin Minifee, who is very progressive in nature, and his sermons would frequently feature subjects such as civil rights and equality. And Minifee, let's just say, decided to shake things up by getting rid of a stale and outdated tradition, getting rid, at last, of those pew rentals. What? When? When did you... When was this? <laughs> yeah. This was still going on in the 1960s? Yes, until, you know, Menifee abolished it in the early 1960s. He later said, quote, It is my feeling that because this is God's house... Any person should be free to enter it and sit wherever he might choose, unquote. By this time, by this decade, of course, Grace was over 120 years old. And so in 1966, the church and the rectory became New York City landmarks. But those Fourth Avenue buildings, you know, the ones that are slightly newer than the rest, Mm -hmm. were actually almost torn down by the church itself. Whoa, why? Well, Menifee is into this community outreach. He wanted to build a gymnasium. This is the challenge, right, with landmarking active buildings that have Mm -hmm. continuing missions. Mm -hmm. Is the architecture more important than serving the community? And so... There was this very heated debate in the mid-1970s. Understandably. But in 1974, that was settled when the present buildings, they were, they were preserved, obviously. They're still there. But they were transformed, refitted, albeit expensively, and turned into a gym. Phew. Wow, I can't even imagine how much that cost, but um, <laughs> thankfully, I'm, I'm glad that they arrived um, at that compromise. I only wish that Catherine Lorillard Wolf had been there to help them out. She would have helped them build a great gym and an attractive one, I'm sure. <laughs> uh, now, Tom, do you remember when we did our Cathedral of St. John the Divine show many years ago? Sure. And how we actually ended that show, going yes. to St. John's, taking a tour? Absolutely. What fun. We even climbed up above the ceiling. <laughs> we did. That's a great, that was a fun show. Well, why don't we do the same thing with Grace Church? Why don't we head over there? Great idea. We will meet up with Harry Krauss, the vicar and historian of Grace Church and former vicar of St. Thomas's Church, right after this. Listen to For the Ages, the New York Historical Society's podcast hosted by David M. Rubenstein, which engages the nation's foremost historians and creative thinkers in conversation on a wide range of topics. 
In his latest conversation, David speaks with Pulitzer Prize winner Rick Atkinson about his book, The Liberation Trilogy, looking at North Africa during World War II and the harrowing campaigns that took place in Sicily and Italy. A pivotal point in history, this period of the war saw American and British armies clash with Vichy France forces in Morocco and Algeria and then take on the Axis powers in Tunisia. And best-selling author Simon Winchester illuminates how humanity's conquest to acquire territory and wield its power has so definitively shaped history. In Land, how the hunger for ownership shaped the modern world. Simon and David have a wide-ranging conversation that examines European imperialism, the dispossession of Native American populations, and Joseph Stalin's brutal collectivization in Soviet territories. That's For the Ages, available on Apple and Spotify. BP added more than $70 billion to the U.S. economy in 2022. Investments like acquiring America's largest biogas producer, Arkea Energy, and starting up new infrastructure in the Gulf of Mexico. It's and, not or. See what doing both means for energy nationwide at bp.com slash investing in America. At Amica Insurance, we know it's more than just a house. It's your home, the place that's filled with memories. The early days of figuring it out to the later years of still figuring it out. For the place you've put down roots, trust Amica Home Insurance. Amica, empathy is our best policy. The legends are true. But overwhelming power! The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of Wickdonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10-piece Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra-powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at Wickdonald's. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba, go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last. Uh, Tom, we're on busy Broadway right now, but we are stepping in front of a place of great peace, Grace Church, of course, and we're here to meet Harry Krauss, who is going to give us a little tour, a little history lesson of the place. Yes, and in fact, Harry is standing in the doorway of the church. Hello, Harry. Hello, how are Hello. you today? Hi. Very, very nice to meet you. Good to see you both. Thank you for meeting us here. And it's, it is really amazing because this is a church that was built in the mid-19th century, but it is in the heart of the hustle and bustle of New York City. Like, you don't get more cosmopolitan than the neighborhood around here, and yet this place still retains that mid-19th century peace and charm to it. Oh, I think that's one of its virtues. We have the blessing of being in the middle of activity. <laughs> what could be better for a church? <laughs> would you like to come inside and have a look? Oh, we would yes, love yes, to. Yes, Thank love you so to. much. Yes. So we're coming into the nave now, and we're standing in the back looking forward to the altar which is at the east end which is a traditional place for the altar to be in an episcopal church building is it looks like it's built of 
capstone, but it really is a bit of a fake. Oh, when really? it When it was built, the interior is plaster and lath. And eventually, part of the church was redone in stone, but most of it here in the nave is plaster and lath, which causes all kinds of difficulties in the world of maintenance. <laughs> How is that? It needs to be repaired. <laughs> uh, yes, uh, but it, it looks, for the most part, like it was meant to look. That gives an atmosphere that uh, creates a sort of comfortable way, the, the way it's been painted and the way it presents itself doesn't make it a great sort of forbidding space. It welcomes people to be a pace of calm where people can just be quiet and meditate and say prayers and be at one mm -hmm. with something larger than themselves. And we're standing in the back of the nave, as you said, and I'm looking up at the arched ceilings and it looks very gothic to me, but not quite. How do you describe the style? Well, you're on the mark. It's a Gothic revival church. Mm -hmm. And in 1846, when it was built, it was meant to be that way. The Gothic, neo-Gothic architectural movement was just getting started. And most of the church, well, indeed, all of the churches in New York City at that time were classical buildings such mm -hmm. as St. Paul's Chapel, but the Gothic revival was the new in thing, and Grace Church wanted to have a new in thing church when they moved up here from downtown, and thus this church was built in this style. James Renwick Jr., who was the architect, and this was his first commission at age 25, <laughs> um, uh, chose this style. He had never been to Europe. He had never seen a real Gothic building, but he used books and engravings and paintings and came up with this design. Was this typical of his work going forward? Well, one of the extraordinary things about Renwick was he used various styles of architecture through his career as an architect. That's one of the things people remark about in the world of architectural history, that he seemed at home with using almost any style and introduced many other styles to the United States. Because of this building, he got the contract to do St. Patrick's Cathedral mm -hmm. uptown. And that, too, was extraordinary because that was started about uh, 10 years after this. So he was only in his 30s when he got that extraordinary so contract. So we're standing at the back of the nave. That means we're standing really at the back doors of the church. And we're looking forward down the central aisle. The entire nave is lined with stained glass windows, and we're looking up at a massive stained glass window above the altar. That's the eastern wall of the church. And what does that depict, by the way, This the, the main stained glass window? A window over the altar is called the Tedeum window. The Tedeum is one of the ancient church hymns about uh, we praise thee, O Lord. And this was put in in the idea of what Christians are meant to do. Uh, there are various, all sorts of people depicted in that, saints and other Christians, martyrs and so forth. And the middle lancet, the middle section of the top of the window, we see Jesus reigning in glory, blessing the world. And all of the other people depicted in the window are offering up praise to him. So the whole idea was that you would come into the church and you would look forward, you would see the altar there, and then you would look up and see this image of Jesus. So the idea was to draw you uh, heavenward as you were in here worshiping or indeed 
just walking in off the street looking at the building. When the church was built, um, there was no stained glass. There was frosted glass. And uh, the first window to be stained glass was that one that we were just talking about. And after that one was done in 1878, people then started contributing to put the rest of the windows in. And they, they take up different biblical themes, uh, different biblical stories and characters. Again, as has been said, stained glass windows are the Bible for the illiterate. Mm-hmm. You don't have to read. <laughs> you can just see the story, the symbols, all that kind of thing. And a number of them are by interesting uh, designers of glass. There's one by Mary Tillinghast, who uh, was a great Victorian artist, and she was an influence on uh, Louis Tiffany, for example. So there's a great range of style and an offering artistically, in addition to uh, spiritually, in the glass. Do you mind if we walk uh, down the center aisle here? Um, and I just want to look at one of the pews. Down okay, the that'll be fine. Let's do that. Now, as we're getting closer to the altar up front, I'm noticing that there are nameplates on the side of some, but not all of these pews. Yes. When the church was built, it was the style to buy and or rent pews. Some people nowadays think that's very exclusive and not the thing you do in a church, everyone should be welcome. Uh, That thought is exactly on the mark. But in the 19th century, that was the way of financing how a parish ran. All of the pews were bought. In 1846, when the parish was opened, um, there was a day on which uh, the pews went for sale. Mm. And you bought your pew, and then every year you paid 8% of the purchase price as your pew rent. And therefore, not only did the parish get the money of the cost of the pew, uh, the parish got each year thereafter 8% of that. And how much did these go for? Uh, The most expensive pew was $950. In the 1840s? In 1846. And an 1846 $1 is worth about $40 now. So do the math. That's a lot of money. Yes, do the math. Uh, So the least expensive pew was about uh, $15 in 1846 money. So it was a way for the church to make money, but it was also a way for those families to kind of reserve a spot right up front into this, you know, well visited church, and so it gave them a little visibility, a little prominence, I guess. Well, in fact, can we go to one of those families up That'd here? That'd be fine. We're going to walk all the way down here, and I'm seeing, let's see, Hamilton Fish Keen. Yes, let's keep moving the Robins. Um, and Memorial. Oh, let's like a familiar see. name. And here we are in the very front on the right, where I see P. Skirmerhorn on the nameplate. On the nameplate, yes. yes. This is the family of Caroline Skirmerhorn, who would go on to become the Mrs. Astor. The very one, yes. Here in the front row. Right in front, where all the action took place. It also meant that her family got to parade down the central aisle, all the Inde- way down. Indeed so. Yes, that's, that's the way it was, and some people, no doubt, would have done that, mm. humble though they were supposed to be. Oh, right. And I mean, it's not to say that that's what they wanted out of this. Maybe they just wanted to be able to hear. Uh, That could be the case. (laughs) But I'd like to make a comment on that. Mm -hmm. While we nowadays would see this as exclusive and so forth, the day that the church was consecrated or blessed to be used, the rector, Dr. Taylor, reminded the congregation that there were people in New York City 
who could not come to this church because they couldn't afford to buy a pew, mm -hmm. and that the congregation could never, ever forget that, and that Grace Church was not finished building, that we were going to build another church that had free pews, a revolutionary idea. And the collection taken at that service went toward the building of another church. So the parish, while it claimed being exclusive, never forgot that there were people who needed a church nonetheless. Now, there are other Grace Churches. Are they all connected in some sort of associated way? They've just chosen the name Grace Church, which is fine. They're not chapels such as uh, Trinity Church Wall Street has had, mm -hmm. so they're not connected in that form. So during the Gilded Age in particular, there were a lot of special events here, right? There were, there were marriages, there were funerals, there were all sorts of different functions that really, I guess, advertised or promoted the church really as the most, one of the most fashionable spots in all of New York City, right? Right. Well, there were all sorts, as you, as you said, of grand weddings and funerals and so forth that I suppose one of the grand when it's in the middle of the 19th century was in 1862 when uh, the Tom Thumb wedding was had. <laughs> that created a gigantic sensation. Tom Thumb and his wife were part of the production of P.T. Barnum and his circus, mm -hmm. and uh, most of the clergy in New York City would have nothing to do with it. They thought it was a circus and a sideshow. Who would do that? Dr. Taylor, who was the rector here, who we gather was a person who didn't suffer fools gladly, um, <laughs> sort of swept aside those attitudes and, and essentially said that uh, they deserve having a church wedding as sure. much as anyone else did. So the wedding was lined up and so forth, and the church was packed with people. They were standing out on Broadway. We have a daguerreotype in the parish archives that show the crowd outside. Oh, really? Wow. Uh, taken from the opposite corner. It's incredible to see Broadway packed with people <laughs> waiting to see the couple come out. So that took place here. and uh, In the 1860s? In the 1860s, yes, indeed. There was a great, great wedding in the 1890s. The Earl of Craven married Caroline Martin, the daughter of Bradley Martin, mm, who had that Martins, uh, yes. a great ball. Mm -hmm. And uh, that wedding was here. And apparently... It all got out of hand out there. The side doors of the church got open in some way or another, and people came into the church and disturbed the wedding, and it was a bit of a mad scene, according to the newspaper reports. Now you've taken us up to the Bradley Martin marriage here in the 1890s, but by that time, and as, as you know, as you've served as the vicar up at St. Thomas's, up at 53rd and 5th, St. Thomas's sort of became, right, another very, very fashionable church during the Gilded Age. Was there a shift somewhere in the 80s and 90s, 1880s and 1890s, where families started attending St. Thomas's over Grace? Was there a kind of passing of the baton at some point? Yes, there was, in fact. Um, and that, that uh, steadily happened with people moving uptown. However, lots of the families stayed here because um, they had a sentimental connection to the parish. So there was a great sort of mixture of those, those families. And that was 
certainly the case till the Second World War, mm. by which time the aristocratic crowd in the Episcopal Church had sort of watered down to just regular, everyday people, mm. although some people still think Episcopalians are grand and mighty. <laughs> but that's, uh, you, you fit the, hit the nail on the head. Of course, today, St. Thomas's dates back to the very early 20th century, I believe, That's after, correct. after a fire. But the atmosphere there is different. I mean, we're standing here next to the altar. Of course, everything's so much smaller in here than St. Thomas's. But there's also more light, is there not, coming in? Oh, there's much more light because the ceiling is not as high. The arrangement of the windows is very much different. Indeed, while it looks smaller, it does hold 1,000 people. Wow. Which mm-hmm. a, a You would not of, guess that. You would yeah. not guess that. Just it does hold it a cleverly, thousand people. It cleverly packs them in, I guess. So on Easter or Christmas, when there are 1,000 people in here, it's an extraordinary experience. Mm-hmm. So just choosing a decade at random, that's the 1870s, for instance. Yes. Um, what would a sort of traditional Sunday service be like? I'm imagining it's filled with people, many people who own pews. Yes. But what... Would the service be very similar to what it might be today, perhaps? As worship in the 1870s, in some ways, was quite like it is today. The principal service was at 11 o'clock, a stylish hour, some thought, but (laughs) 11 11 o'clock was the normal time, and we do have an 11 o'clock service. There are other services, but that's the principal service. And uh, most of the congregation would have come to that service. In the 1870s here, I suspect it was grand entrances by allegedly important people, Mm -hmm. uh, the latest fashions being shown. Be that the case, uh, the actual worship was in many ways similar to what we have today. Episcopalians use the Book of Common Prayer. It features hymns, psalms, prayers, and and a sermon. And when the Holy Communion or Holy Eucharist is had, that's the chief part of the service where the congregation comes to the altar and receives uh, bread and wine of, of the Holy Eucharist. At Grace Church, in addition, Sunday school was offered, as it is now, and there's a chapel on the south side of the church, which was built in the early 1880s, and we do the same thing today. So there's much similar to what was done in the 1870s. And, um, you know, everyone who comes under here is equal in the eyes of God, but in the Gilded Age, there were some of these families that were the more bold-faced dames. Who were, who were some of these families who came through here that people might just recognize the last name because, of course, they may have a building named after them or whatnot, right? <laughs> yes, well, we've come and we're standing by a Skirmerhorn pew, and of course they were related then to the great asters. Mm-hmm. There were Auchincloses. Mm. There were Hamilton Fish and all, all of his, his group, Townsends and Martins, and uh, not to be rude to them, but they thought they were more equal than others. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. But the, the fact is, interestingly enough, Many of them had a great spiritual life, although they just appeared grand and important to other people. Many of them worshipped. While Mr. J.P. Morgan was not a member of this parish, he in fact carried a Book of Common Prayer with him everywhere. Really? So there were a number of these very grand, rich people who had a great spiritual life. Mm -hmm. And who were incredibly generous, too. They were extremely generous. So it's really not right. It's easy to be sarcastic about these things, but it's, it's a little more difficult to look and truly reflect on who they were and what they gave. Exactly. He's actually leading us up into the choir stalls. Um, We're stepping up onto the altar underneath and taking seats inside the choir stalls that are positioned 
just underneath two massive pipe organs. So the church welcomes people for worship, but it also invites people in just to appreciate the history. There are tours, right? There are things like this. Yes, the church is open every day. And people can come in to say prayers or just be quiet and have a place to rest. But we do have tours of the church, and we do have some evenings where we invite the neighborhood to come in, and we have refreshments for them, and show them a particular uh, part of the church or a particular aspect of the building, and um, allow them to ask questions about the church, not in the sense of it being um, a religious event, but in the sense that it's part of this neighborhood and has been part of this neighborhood since 1846, because that's important to the parish, that we're part of the neighborhood in a larger sense than being a place of worship and spiritual life. In that regard, parish started the first lending library. The parish had one of the first daycare centers, and that was in the 19th century. So there's that kind of an aspect that we've still maintained of being involved in the life of the city. So we want people coming in here so that they can go out better equipped to live the lives they have to live. I will say that um, for many years I worked down at Houston and Broadway, and on so many days over my lunch break, I would actually come up and sit inside the church here because uh-huh. you could hear organ music. Oh, yes. Is there, are, are there still recitals, and can you listen to the organist practice? Yes. Every day at noon, our organist, Dr. Allen, does a recital. He loves Bach and plays Bach brilliantly, so he usually offers a Bach recital. People on the street can come in and hear this marvelous organ that we have, which was installed to celebrate the 200th anniversary of the parish in 2008. I have to say, this is a very wonderful place around Christmas time. Do you, uh, do yes. you know anything about what's happening upcoming for the year? Or? Well, yes. The Grace Church Choral Society, which is formed of people from the parish, but is much larger. There are people from all over New York who sing in that group, has an annual Christmas concert, and the congregation get to to sing uh, with them, and that's always a popular, popular event. And then there are all the Christmas services. There are some during the weekdays of just Christmas carols and readings, and then the services around Christmas Day itself and Christmas Eve. The church is decorated. Everyone's welcome. Oh, it's a beautiful music. Sounds so wonderful in here. I, the acoustics are unbelievably good for that kind of music. Oh, yes. <laughs> well, Harry Krauss, you have now gotten us into the into the Christmas spirit, and we really <laughs> appreciate you taking us through the history of Glad Grace, to do it. Grace Church. Thank you. You're, Thank you very much. You're most kind to come visit us. You're welcome anytime. Oh, thank you. I'll take you up on the invitation. Thank you. By the way, I actually took Harry up on his offer and visited Grace Church yesterday to enjoy some Bach played on their organ. It's around noon, and honestly, I cannot recommend this more highly. It's a perfect little break in the middle of the day, very peaceful, beautiful, quieting. You can get the music schedule at their website, gracechurchnyc.org. And, of course, visit our website, BoweryBoysHistory.com, to see images of our journey there and other historical images of the church. 
A huge thank you to everybody who has joined the show over on patreon.com slash boys. With your small monthly contributions, um, you are the sort of backbone of support for the Bowery Boys. We couldn't be making the show without you. And to thank you and to thank our patrons, we have a patron-only show called Side Streets. Greg and I have a special holiday edition of Side Streets cooked up for you. So head over to patreon.com slash boys to join the fun and join with your support. Of course, I hope you're all enjoying Tom and his co-host Alicia Malone over at the official Gilded Age podcast. But sticking with that historical theme, do also check out the Gilded Gentleman this season. He's cranking out weekly shows throughout the end of the year and some really intriguing ones, including a show on Newport, Rhode Island, a brand new show on the opening of Delmonico's Restaurant in the Financial District, and a great interview with Simon Jones from the Gilded Age TV show. Just follow the Gilded Gentleman on the same podcast players you're listening to us on. And because you can never have enough Gilded Age, we also have special Gilded Age mansions tours over at Bowery Boys Walks that are turning into a real fun way to also celebrate the holiday season Walking up Fifth Avenue and learning more about the buildings past and present. Some of them are still there. And learning about the architecture of the beautiful mansions during the Gilded Age. You can book that walk along with Christmas and old New York walks, a new 1830s New York tour in Lower Manhattan, and so much more. Check out Bowery Boys Walks to join the fun. Portions of today's episode were edited by Kieran Gannon. So we hope you enjoyed this little peek inside one of New York City's most famous churches. Thank you very much for listening, and have a great New York week, whether you live here or not. See you real soon. Happy holidays. Hey, everyone. This is Tom. Just a quick note that season two of HBO's series The Gilded Age is now live on Max, and that means... So is the official Gilded Age podcast, which I'm hosting, along with Alicia Malone from Turner Classic Movies. Every week, we dig deep into the drama and the history behind what you see on your screen. If you like the Bowery Boys, the Gilded Age TV show and podcast is made for you. Listen to HBO's The Official Gilded Age podcast on Max or wherever you get your podcasts. The legends are true. But overwhelming power. The sauce of destiny. Yes! The most legendary sauce has arrived as McDonald's transforms into the anime world of McDonald's. The greatest flavors unite in all new savory chili McDonald's sauce to make your 10 piece Wick Nuggets, fries, and Sprite ultra powerful. Unlock manga comics with every meal and sit down for a new anime short every week only at McDonald's. Ba da ba ba ba. Go! I participate in McDonald's for a limited time while supplies last.